And for reflection this evening, I turn your attention to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. And we'll be reading verses 34 through 48. The psalmist is narrating part of Israel's history. He says, verse 34, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nation so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So we have been journeying through this Psalm 106. And the dominant idea of the Psalm, as we have established, is Israel's rebellion, their continued, persistent rebellion against God, against the backdrop of God's Mercy, God's grace toward them is fatherly chastisement. We saw last time how that among their many acts of rebellion against God, they were murmuring, grumbling against God's providence, on account of which Moses became angry. He lost his temper, he lost his school, and it cost Moses spiritually. And we come this afternoon to verses 34 to 48, where we find further expression of Israel's ongoing rebellion against the Lord. By this time, that is here in verses 34 through 48, Israel is no longer in the wilderness. They're no longer wandering in the wilderness, but they're settled in the land of Canaan. And prior to entering the land of Canaan, God gave them a warning in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6, and here was what God told them. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must not devote then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, 
for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly, but thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire for your people, holy to the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God. Now true to their pattern of disobedience, continued disobedience to God, once they entered the promised land, Israel did the very opposite. Verses 34 and 35 of our text, Psalm 106 says this, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. Why did God give this specific command to Israel to destroy and dispossess the Canaanites on entering the land of Canaan? He commanded them to do so because he knew how corrupt these nations were in terms of their lifestyle. These nations were given to all kinds of egregious, abominable practices. For example, among the Canaanites, and remember when we talk about the Canaanites, we're not talking about a monolithic group of people, a monolithic set of people. What we're talking about is a diverse group of nations. Such as you have the Hittites, the Amorites, the uh, Girgashites, and so on and so forth. And among these nations, there was a practice of child sacrifice. There was a practice of witchcraft, necromancy, and various kinds of deviant sexual activities, just to name a few of their detestable activities. And God knew very well the potential of his people for spiritual contamination. God knew very well that they would become contaminated by way of amalgamation and assimilation. He knew that surrounded by these peoples, Israel would be tempted to join with them in their idolatrous practices and be spoiled by them. And here's the point, the point we need to understand is this, that the greatest threat, the greatest threat which Israel faced was not, that is ancient Israel, was not military. The greatest threat the nation faced was moral and spiritual. And here's the point, the greatest threat that you and I face today, beloved, the greatest threat that you and I face is not diseases, is not viruses. The greatest threat you and I face is not persecution. Here's the point, the greatest threat you and I face in our time is the threat of losing our distinctiveness as the people of God. And a lot of that is happening in our times. Here's the point. When we fail to understand that God has called us to be holy, that God has called us to be different, and when we take on the ways of the world, then that is a path to sure spiritual defeat. And what we find with ancient Israel then was this, that rather than eradicating those nations as the Lord had commanded them, verse 34, Israel mixed with them, verse 35a. And how did they mingle with these nations? Of course, they did so by marriage, by commerce. Solomon, you recall, did this very thing in 1 Samuel 11, 1 through 10. According to Judges 3, 5 through 6, they entered into marriage with them, giving their sons and daughters in marriage and vice versa. 
And sure enough, just as the Lord had solemnly warned, such disobedience led to their descending in a downward spiral of ever-increasing grievous sins. Verse 35b says this, they learned to do as they did. The Hebrew word here suggests that they studied and were, in fact, they had become, as it were, proficient in practicing the very things of which these nations were guilty. Verses 36 through 38 cites the specific sins they learned from these nations. What were some of these sins? First of all, idolatry to which they became enslaved. Verse 36a says this, they served their idols which became a snare to them. And you recall who fell into this tragedy of falling into idolatry all because of intermingling with foreign nations, nations that were ungodly. Yes, Solomon in 1 Samuel, 1 Kings 11, 1, 10, we read these words. Now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Here's what the narrator says. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart for when Solomon was old his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father for Solomon went after Ashtoreth the goddess of, of the Sidonians and after Milcom the abomination of the Ammonites so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow wholly the Lord as David his father had done and then on it tells of his idolatrous exploits, how he built altars to these false gods. And of course, we know the tragedy of it all is that it did not end there. In 931 BC, the kingdom was split so that no longer you had one kingdom of Israel, but you have now kingdom of Israel in the north, kingdom of Judah in the south. Now, note the massive consequences that followed Israel's equally, unequally, their unequally yoked alliance with their surrounding heathen neighbors. We notice, first of all, not only was there idolatry, but secondly, I should say, was their involvement in child sacrifice. Verses 37 and 38, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons they poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Sounds familiar? Yes? You could actually write beside these verses these words. You could write as a caption to these verses these words. The abortion industry, its demonic nature, and defiling impact. On the environment. Isn't that what the text says? The abortion industry, its defiling nature and its deadly defiling impact on the environment. Notice how God describes this practice. He says it's demonic. 
It is demonic because it is not life-affirming. Any act in which life is taken unnecessarily has to be demonic because what is the agenda of Satan? What is the agenda of the devil? Here's what the Lord Jesus says. The devil comes but to what? Kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. We see in the text that it is demonic. And God says because of these practices, the land becomes polluted. We talk today about the downgrade of the environment. We talk about the environment this and the environment that. Well, here's what the word of God says. We talk about the earth not yielding its produce as it should. And let me say this. There has to be a cause and effect relationship in all of this. The sociologists will not agree with this. The economists will not agree with this. The politicians will not agree agree with this. But the fact is, when God's law is trampled on, when lives are taken of the innocent unborn, then, according to the word of God, that affects the very land on which we live. Why? Because God sees to it that his judgment comes upon the earth. Of note here is that the sacrifice Israel made of their children was to molech the deity of the Ammonites. The cruel practice of the Ammonites in sacrificing their children occurred during the reigns of King Ahaz, 2 Kings 16, verse 3. It occurred during the reign of Manasseh, 2 Kings 23, verse 10. And account of these practices, God brought judgment on the nation. Now, where is this sacrifice to Molech? In truth and in fact, according to the writer here, the psalmist says here, they were in fact sacrificing to demons. You see, worship, idolatry is not a neutral activity. If we're not worshiping the living God, something else has to be worshipped. Because we are made worshipping creatures. If we're not worshipping the living God, then we're worshipping something else. We're worshipping The devil is a suggestion of the word of God. On account of such abominable practice, says verse 38, the land was polluted with blood. Not only that, but they themselves became, notice verse 39a, they themselves became defiled by their idolatrous involvement. Verse 39a, we read, thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. The psalmist is saying there that in doing so, what did they do? They breached their covenant with the Lord, their covenant relationship with the Lord, acting treacherously against the Lord, engaging in spiritual adultery, in spiritual prostitution. In these ways, they displayed contempt for the Lord. Because that's the language of the psalmist. They showed contempt for the Lord. And how did the Lord respond to their contempt? Notice verses 40 and 41, God returned the favor. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, Paul will say in Romans chapter 1, God gave them up. It's the same principle here. They showed contempt for the Lord. Verses 40 and 41, God returned the favor because here's what the word of God says. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them over into the hands of the nation so that those who hated them ruled over them. 
We could spend hour or so on this passage. Those who hated them rule over them. And maybe I'd be like Jeremiah because when Jeremiah preached something like that, they came after him and they accused him of treachery. But Jeremiah was preaching the word of God. Here's what the word of God says. If we fail to serve and honor the true and living God as a people, God will see to it in his sovereign providence that we are ruled by our enemies. That's what the word of God says. The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nation so that those who hated them ruled over them. In judging the people of Israel, God saw to it that because they refused to serve him, he allowed them to become served slaves to their enemies. Verses 40 to 43. Here's what the word of God says. Their enemies oppressed them. And they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. If God did it to nations in the past, God can do it to us. Is a sobering idea here. The book of Judges records, records numerous times the people of Israel were subjected to their enemies. All on account of their apostasy, their idolatry. Judges 2, 11 through 14 illustrates this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he gave them up to plunderers who plundered, plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Such was the just judgment of God for Israel's disobedience and disloyalty to the Lord. And how urgent the call of God comes to you and me as Christians today. For example, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul writes to Christians and he's saying, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. And then he goes on to say, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and so on and so forth. God wants us to be what? A separated people. He wants for us to be distinctly his people in a crooked, corrupt world. Second Corinthians six fourteen through 17, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? Here's what he says. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Instead, what do we have today? Even among professing believers, it is the temptation and even the very action of being politically correct, not wanting to appear queer, not want... By the way, I used the word loosely a while ago. I really mean odd. 
You see how even I, I have to explain why? Because they have tampered with the vocabulary. Out of fear of appearing odd, weird. What do many professing Christians do from time to time? They play up to the culture. They are politically correct and they abandon God and his word. All in the name of political correctness. All for the sake of wanting to be cool and to fit in. And we need to remember ancient Israel. Israel was tempted to do that. Israel fell into the temptation. They became like the surrounding nations. They adopted their practices on account of which God judged them. We need to be different. We need to be distinct. And yet the wonderful truth, here it comes once again, recurrent through this, throughout the psalm, is the forgiving, restoring grace of God. Because in verses 43 to 46, we find that notwithstanding their countless instances of rebellion against God, God patiently bore with them and did not forget them. You see, when it comes to his people, judgment is never the last word. Yes, he chastises, he afflicts for their rebellion. Here's what the word of God says. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry for their sakes. He remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. See, even in the midst of judgment, God is gracious toward its erring, sinful, rebellious people. And at the end of the day, what was a single overarching factor on account of which God did not destroy them? Look at verse 45. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Why does not God destroy us as Christians when we stray, when we rebel against him? Why? Because of covenant that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who, having died for our sins, continues to make intercession for us, continues to keep us saved right to the very end. God is faithful, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, by whom you were called into fellowship. He will preserve you blameless until the very end. And it was against the backdrop of this unfailing mercy of God as we draw to a close that the psalmist turned to the Lord in prayer. Here's what he says, verse 47. He says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nation. What is the psalmist saying here? The psalmist is looking back at all that he has said in Psalm 106 regarding Israel's checkered history of rebelling against God, their repentance, their going back in their sins. Oh, God is gracious to them. And in his present situation, he's saying, Lord, save us and gather us from among the nations. We need to be gathered from the nation because we don't want to become like them. This is not your will for us. And the psalmist cites the reasons for desiring such deliverance. Namely, that thanksgiving and worship be accorded to the Lord. Verse 47, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. 
The psalmist ends by blessing and praising the Lord as he did at the beginning of this psalm. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. What's the enduring lesson from this portion of scripture? Sure, the lesson here for us is that the unfailing mercies of God in the face of our many sins against him should lead us should inspire us to thanksgiving and praise to him for his mercies. And we must never make the mistake of thinking that the forgiving mercy and grace of God gives us license for continued sin. Because as we learn from this passage, God judges sin even in the lives of his redeemed. May God bless these truths to our hearts for his name's sake. 